0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm so incredibly excited to learn more about coffee today. (laughs) I am new to coffee drinking. Somehow the pandemic really brought it home to me as a ritual, something to look forward to. But I need to know a lot more. So today on Speaking Broadly, I have an expert of an extraordinary quality. Her name is Sam Nye. And Sam, welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. You know more than almost anyone in the entire world because you're a Q grader and you have a coffee shop called The Coffee Project. Let's just start. I want everyone to learn a little bit about your background and then how you fell so hard for coffee and a little bit about the business that you're in right now, just so everyone knows who they're listening to.
3: Um, So everyone, my name is Sam. Uh, Born and raised in Malaysia, I came to USA about uh, 10 years ago. And my love for coffee started all the way back when I was five. But back home in Malaysia, instead of drinking coffee as a beverage, it is more like a culture perspective. We hang out, we order coffee, we drink coffee at 7 a.m., 12 p.m., and even 11 p.m. So for me, it's more like the thought about getting together. But like my passion for coffee actually really started when I moved here, learning on how to brew it, knowing how certain flavor can come through from a cup of espresso got me really into thinking like, what have I done for the past 20 something years that I'm not drinking coffee the way I'm drinking right now. So it's really funny, Um, but that's how I started. And then uh, in 2015, I started coffee project with Kalina. Uh, which is my partner. Now we have four coffee shops. We have a roastery where we roast in Long Island City. Um, and then we have the only certified specialty coffee school in Long Island City as well. We've been doing a lot in terms on teaching people how to brew coffee from professional level to like hobbyist.
2: What's the first thing that anyone needs to know about coffee?
3: One thing uh, when we teach uh, to cover our bases, we always say that coffee is actually a fruit. It is a cherry that's grown on a tree and um, the coffee that we see, the coffee bean is actually the seed of the cherry. So that's how we start our conversation and we can sit and talk about it all day long.
2: When people look at the board in a coffee shop, you know, like all of the options, that's where my heart starts to palpitate because I'm like, do I want something from Ethiopia? Do I want something from Guatemala? What are the differences? So thinking about that, like, is that one of the first choices that you have to make? Like, where is the coffee grown? Like, is that the next thing you need to know aside from the fact that it's a fruit?
3: Um, True that. And I think this is already like a more advanced level in terms of knowing about coffee, because when we talk about coffee from different regions, they do sometimes bring out different flavor profile that is from the terroir itself. It's not something that me as a roast, can change much. For example, if we're talking about coffee in the African region, mainly like Ethiopia, Kenya, we're looking into coffee that has a lot of fruit qualities, higher acidity and brightness, um, even florality. But if you want something with like a sweeter, uh, more darker, ripe fruit notes to it, maybe we're going to switch something down to like Colombia, Guatemala, something of a lower elevation to figure out like what kind of profile that we like. However, as roasters ourselves, when we get our hands on coffee from different country, what we do is we always sample roast them. So we would roast them to different profiles and then we would think like, huh, how is my roasting style or skills Complement the natural quality of this coffee. Do I need to develop it a little bit more so that I bring out more chocolate notes, or do I need to like develop it a little bit lighter so that I can showcase the acidity? So this is also something that uh, we all want to know about. And the three main region of coffee growing uh, will probably be Africa, the Americas, and also Asia, and they all carry different flavor profile. So just now you mentioned something about going to a coffee shop. When a customer comes in, they'll be like, hmm. Uh, uh, what is your recommendation? So the first question that we always ask is, what do you normally drink? What do you feel like your go-to is? Uh, do you want something of more fruit notes, more chocolate, or do you prefer something lighter? So from there, we gauge and then we direct them to different region, And then they can pick up a bag and take a look at their flavor profile and feel like, oh, maybe this is the cup they want. Do they want milk or not?
2: Something like that. In wine, you sometimes will ask someone, you know, what do they drink with breakfast in order to tell you what they might like in wine? So you might say, do you drink orange juice, which would give you a sense of like, do they like something fruity? And, you know, do you drink something acidic or do you drink milk? So it's just interesting because, of course, coffee, you have the same things like the language around these beverages, is so difficult until you compare them to something else. And I know that there is a universal coffee language that you've learned because that's the language of the Q grader. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that?
3: Oh, yes. Uh, In fact, I'm really thankful that there is something like this going on for us as coffee professionals. So... Q-grading is actually like a sensory exam where we calibrate for people who are into grading green coffee. So once you're certified and a Q-grader, you can Access score to a coffee bean, just like how wine has a scoring system. Therefore, all the Q graders uh, are calibrated. And uh, when we say we could taste uh, this level of acidity, this flavor call, let's say, blueberry or like orange blossom, then this other Q grader in Korea or like in Indonesia will have to be able to match the score. We can't be too different. So all of us are calibrated in a way. There's almost 19 tests for us to pass. And it ranges from acidity, telling the body and detecting the defects. So this common language for us is also helpful when we want to help guide our barista to brew the coffee. It's also helpful when we want to guide our fellow farmers to actually bring out certain notes due to some processing that they're doing in the farm. So I think the language itself is helping us understand that if I say this coffee has a blueberry notes to it, you will understand the impression of a blueberry just like I do.
2: I think what that also seems to point to is that there's a certain way to assign qualities to coffee, right? So you look at acidity, you look at body, like what are the qualities that you're looking for when you are tasting a coffee?
3: Mm, I think ultimately, like most of us would like to taste a cup of coffee that is like balanced because certain coffee can have like really good and shining acidity, but after we sample, roast it and cup it, it falls through after the first sip. Like it doesn't have an ending. It doesn't have a good aftertaste. So even though the acidity kind of shine, you get the sweetness the score of this coffee is probably going to fall short a little bit just because it doesn't feel like it's holistic.
2: And so you were talking about the fact that you have a a roastery, you buy the beans green. Can you just tell me about the journey of coffee from being planted to in the cup, just so people could understand a little bit about
3: that? Yeah, it's actually a very intensive journey. So before I started venturing into the back end of like producing and all that, I only want to own a coffee shop and just brew good coffee. So all I know is literally from the hopper to the cup of coffee. But Right after I did my Q grading and passed as a Q grader, it changed a lot of my perspective. I now learned that you need to have so much more effort in the farm and the producing site in order to produce a good cup of coffee, because in a tree itself, it takes years to mature. And when the coffee cherry is ripening in the branch, they don't all ripe at the same time. So... If you have to go and harvest, you probably have to hand pick them and only pick the ripe cherries. So you might spend like seven or eight hours a day, but you only get a bucket full of red cherries. And after processing and roasting, we might only end up with one pound of coffee. Wow. Yeah. So this is how crazy it is. And it's so important for um, the producers and also the farmers to know that we are only taking the ripened cherry because they all will taste different if you were to like just pick everything ripe and all. Um, Think about a bowl of salad. If you have a watermelon in there or melon in there that are like some are super ripe, some are unripe, you might once in a while get this super acidic piece of melon that you find it a little bit distracted in your bowl of salad. So same goes to coffee. A lot of effort is being put through. So when your coffee from the farm is picked and all ripe at the same time of highest quality. And then when you reach to the roasters, the roasters also put a lot of effort in taking care of like uh, storing moisture content and all that. And finally, to the barista, who's going to be brewing it according to its best knowledge, then arrive to the consumer who's going to drink it. And um, you can taste right away the difference in the quality itself. So when you
2: get the beans for the roastery. What does that process look like? The beans arrive and then what happens?
3: Um, the beans arrive. So first of all, we need to make sure that the storage is good. So in our roastery, it is uh, temperature control and humidity control, just because we want to make sure that when we roast it at any point of the day, they always have the same temperature. So this is for consistency purposes. So when I need to roast the coffee the first time in the morning, if I take it off in a bag of uh, jute, it will be, let's say, uh, somewhat cold, certain temperatures, certain Fahrenheit. I want to make sure that when I roast again the same coffee at 1pm, I'm still dropping it into the roaster at the same temperature. So that's one thing that we always want to do. We also always check the moisture content in the coffee bean itself. We also always check the density of the coffee bean because all this is going to give us knowledge on how to approach the beans. Like what is the temperature I need to be using on my roaster to make sure that it will roast properly and I don't burn the beans or I under roast the bean underdeveloped the bean and things like that. Things that I actually have never thought of when
2: drinking my coffee. So that's good to know. And then in turning the bean from green to roasted, you're trying to bring out its natural flavors. Like what does the roasting process do to the beans? And how does it affect from the words that I see are like dark roast, medium roast, espresso roast. Like, does that all happen in the roastery? Like,
3: how does that work? I love to discuss about this. This is one of my favorite topics. So all these happen in the roastery. When we talk about roasting coffee, but what we're actually doing is the chemical reaction of turning the sugar content in the coffee bean itself to something else, just like how you would cook sugar. So darker roast coffee, it's equivalent to looking darker, of course, number one. Number two is how much the sugar content in the coffee cherry is being cooked. So think about caramel, like if you overdo it, then you get a lot more bitterness compared to sweetness, but it's still kind of sweet. So that is how dark roast is to me. And also the more you roast them, you're also taking away uh, more of the natural characteristic of the coffee which is oftentimes starting off with being herbaceous or fruity. So as we continue to roast the coffee, more and more of this quality of the herbaceous and also florality is going to decline. More and more sweetness from the sugar in the coffee is going to shine to a point where I think what we call balance. That's when I decide to drop that coffee. So as roasters, we always want to find that balance point where The sugar is just nice to complement the natural characteristic of the coffee. And uh, if you don't want any of those herbaceous and florality and acidity at all, then we're going to go all the way to dark roast. And what you're getting is just like chocolate, nuttiness and also very bold cup of coffee.
2: And do you find that people who come in, they know their style? And if they don't know their style, how do you help them find their style?
3: Um, I think most of the people definitely know what they want their coffee to taste like. So if they were to come in and they feel adventurous, then I always like to ask them if they're feeling to try something that is not what they usually drink. Like, for example, if you go into a coffee shop, oftentimes you just ask for a drip coffee or a latte. And if there's no conversation involved, most of the time they will just give you their house coffee, which is a blend of a few countries or one or two countries, and then it's pretty common. But if they're feeling adventurous, I always like to like encourage them to say, hey, how about we have this special processing coffee that's going to be super fruity, you're going to taste da-da-da, and if they are up for it, um, we move on. Oh,
2: I love that idea. So you, there is actually adventure to be had. Like, Is there a sort of beginner's coffee and then goes towards you know, something that's more exotic? And what does exotic mean if everything sort of is in balance one way or another?
3: Most of the people that are, we deal with in the coffee shop are at their beginner level, right? They would come in and would never expect their coffee to taste like tea. Or they've never expected coffee to actually taste like blueberry or like floral. So I always find it really interesting when we had this conversation and when they drink their first cup of Ethiopian pour over. It's very mesmerizing because the first sip for them, they will be like, Oh my gosh, I actually can smell this berry coming out from the coffee. What is that? Is this really coffee? And then the whole conversation about elevation, and how the coffee is being processed, is handpicked by the farmers. And it has to happen only after you have some sort of comfortable level with the customer like sadly sometimes our passion is being seen as being like really pretentious <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't want that <laughs> neither pushy nor you don't want to be pretentious and you don't want
2: to be too pushy right like
3: exactly so when you're comfortable like feel free to like make suggestion but it's totally okay and some people when they order coffee like that we always encourage drinking them black. But if they want a few drop of milk in their coffee, just tell them, hey, you want to take a sip and see how it goes. I'll definitely get the milk in for you. But maybe you want to try it before that and see how it is, because this is how we suggest that we serve it this way. Right. So do true coffee lovers... Just believe that drinks
2: with milk in them are an abomination, you know, because they mask the flavors. There's all this work The the farmer worked hard and the roaster worked hard and the barista worked hard and then boom milk. I mean, is that just sort of an insult to the process
3: or how do you see that? It is not an insult at all. In fact, we are talking about now moving on to milk beverage, then we're going to focus a little bit more on espresso beverages. So espresso is like a method where you're making the most out of this compact uh, pressure. So you have very thick and bold coffee. And sometimes it tastes really good with etiquette amount of milk and it brings out different flavor profiles at all. So for me, I also drink milk beverage. I also like a cortado of flat white. It just depends on how much milk you wanna put into your coffee. It's funny. I was in
2: Australia, home of the flat white, and I made it my business to ask every single food person that I met, which considering what my life is, that was most, almost everybody, um, you know, how they defined a flat white white, and everyone defined it differently. What's your definition, which I'm sure is the correct definition of a flat white? So flat
3: white in Coffee Project, the way we serve it is uh, we have a double shot of espresso as the base, and then we will froth our milk to not too frothy but it's silky enough that it looks like velvet paint. It's just a amount of foam that uh, we're introducing into the milk texture. And in order for us to have this nice flat white what we do is instead of pouring it directly into the coffee crema espresso crema we like to sink the milk into the crema of the espresso. So for us it looks flat on the top and it's white at the bottom. And it is always a five ounce drink. We don't have any sizes for a flat white. And I think we like it that way just because of the balance between how the milk feels in your mouth and also the, the taste of the coffee that complement the mouth. Let's move into
2: the, the how you make coffee section for a moment. People are so devoted to their method. I am a devotee of the simplest, which is the Chemex. But I would love you to just tell us about the standard methods of making coffee and what you gain and maybe what you lose
3: when you make coffee different ways. First, I'm going to talk about the standard. Uh, For a lot of people, the standard of making coffee is like French press or like putting into a batch brew, but I happen to really enjoy complexity of a pour-over. So uh, just like you, I like Camax too, but I like single brew method and I have been exploring all sort of different pour-overs that I really enjoy doing. So my cup of coffee takes 15 minutes to make in the morning. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. Don't judge me. (laughs) I think I just like fell in love. Um, How do you spend 15 minutes making a cup of coffee? I need to know. Like when I have time in the morning. What I like to do is I actually like to grind my coffee I like to sift them and then I like to sometimes just pick certain parts from the sifting process into my coffee. I have never sifted coffee. So what type of grinder do you use? Um, I have a fellow oat grinder that I'm actually using in the Long Island City location. What level of grind?
2: Like do you get it very fine and when you sift it are you sifting in order to like separate bigger from smaller? I guess that's what sifting does but like how fine are you trying to get
3: it and what does that do? Okay so what I I do with the grinder uh, after I grind them is any grinder in the world they will always give you different grind size even if you grind it to let's say medium fine or medium coarse or whatever you want to grind so there's always particles that happens to be finer than usual because coffee are really brittle they break like a different position and all that so when you sift it you Okay, this is super geeky, but... Um, I'm really loving it, though. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, this is my
2: morning routine that only takes me three minutes. So I want to see how to extend this so th- and understand it better.
3: Yeah, so this cipher that we have actually tells you the microns of the grinds that you have. So depending on how you feel like it... So let's say today I want to use a uh, flat-bottom brewer. So I would definitely grind my coffee a little bit coarser than the usual cone dripper because when you have a flat bottom brewer, it has a longer contact time with water. So you don't need it to be so fine. Extraction can still happen pretty optimally. So after I sift it, if I have still have time, I will probably take like 10% of the super fine and then 70% of the usual grind size that I use and then take a little bit more of the uh, coarser and put them into my cup. So why do I do that? It's because I could easily. (laughs) You knew that question was coming (laughs) because I'm like, wow, okay. Yeah, so I could easily just brew everything, like to be honest, like no issue at all. It would still taste delicious. But um, the thing is for me, because I have to oversee the quality of my coffee, I want to be able to take out certain parts of the coffee and imagine that my grinder is like any grinder from anywhere and uh, I brew it. But if I were to just take one part of the coffee and then I brew it, it's somewhat, to me, it lacks corrector. It is super clean. It's very easy to drink. But I kind of like uh, if I brew some fines in there and some that normal grind size in there, it enhances the complexity of the taste. Wow. And why is that? Just because it extracts differently. So exactly. Like fines extract a lot easier because of the surface, exposed surface. And the coarser grinds extract less easily compared to the fines that I have. And then I'm sure you're very particular about water temperature. Mm, Yes, I actually brew my coffee at different temperature depending on where they're from. So if I have a coffee from the African region, I like to brew it with a lower temperature because I like to brew it longer. So these are all brewing theories that we're talking in the lab itself. If you use a lower water temperature, you need to have a longer brew time in order to extract more. But if you have a higher water temperature, you get to extract it at a shorter brew time because of the chemistry that's involved. What is the, the
2: character difference of the coffee if it's longer and lower versus faster and
3: higher? In my personal opinion, I think slower and lower It will bring up more delicacy of the coffee. You get a little bit more sweetness, less harshness in coffee. But when you're doing it fast and high, depending on how you're agitating the coffee, you can still get a great cup, but you have to pour so much more carefully to not over-extract a certain part of the coffee and under-extract a certain part of the coffee. So
2: this is your
3: preferred like at-home way to make coffee? Yeah if I have time I definitely want to do all these things in the morning and pick out of like I think I have eight drippers at home that I will pick according to the different types of coffee that I have. And they all brew differently. And I. I okay, yeah. you need to tell me. This is this is a level of coffeeness I didn't know existed. So, what are the eight types? Um, so, uh, obviously, there is the cone shape, there is also the flat bottom. But with cone shape itself, we have the V60, and we have the Melita, and then we have the Kalita, we also have the Gabi dripper. Now that we have the origami, and then we have the flour. So all these are names of drippers.
2: So they each drip differently
3: because they each
2: either like float more slowly or more quickly or give longer or shorter times for the drip to pass through.
3: That is correct. Um, and also with this different brewing gear, how they look like, it also comes with different paper filter that would complement the way you brew the coffee. So thicker filter, thinner filter, that's only one part of it. Each of these dripper actually are very thoughtful. When they are being designed, the people who design it thought about the flow, like you mentioned, the flow rate. How did it prevent the water from passing through too quickly or too slowly, regardless of the way you pour? Because everyone pours differently. Everyone has different pour style. And if you pour it a little bit too vigorously, the fines of coffee that we don't see Get stuck on the side of your paper filter, and that's when your your water can't go down. Your coffee get clogged, and that's when over extraction happen, and then your coffee is bitter. Wow! And does it depend on your mood which one you choose? Ah, uh, yes, and it also depends on what coffee I feel like drinking, because uh, some coffee shines a little bit better using certain style, using certain filter, but. It also depends on yeah how fast I want to brew this coffee. In restaurants, it's very clear to me when I
2: look at a menu, I can judge the restaurant in a split second because there's all kinds of tells on the menu. Like What is a tell in a coffee shop for a coffee shop that takes its bean seriously and the brewing seriously and the barista seriously?
3: So I think the tell for me, I think it will be the grinder. A good grinder is going to make brewing process so much easier easier and the coffee is going to taste better just because your grinder is good. Who makes the best grinders
2: for consumers and then who makes the best grinders for coffee shops?
3: So um, I don't think so. I am in the position to say like the best grinder uh, for a coffee shop or like consumer, but I can share my experience on like some grinders that I find that if they have this quality, it's going to be really good for consumers or like coffee shop. So consistency is the one thing that we all struggle a lot with uh, while we're brewing coffee. So we want to have a grinder that doesn't get hot too quickly in a coffee shop because we are grinding, like let's say, three to four shots in a minute or maybe more if you're busy. So most of the grinders that I've dealt with, if you grind more than two shots in a minute, your grinds tend to become inconsistent and your shots become wonky. So that is for like Pulling espresso. Like, relatively, if you put in the same amount of coffee in your portafilter, which is the handle that you put into your group to deal espresso, and if your grinder is the same setting, you use the same coffee amount and you are timing it correctly, your shot should taste the same. But we realized that if if the burr in the uh, grinder is heating up and that's when you have to start moving your grinder a little bit in terms of setting because that changed everything. It changed the time of coffee extracting in the puck Because the
2: grinders have burrs that grind the coffee down. And then if it heats the coffee as it grinds, then obviously you have a different temperature coffee going into whatever drink you're making.
3: Yeah. It's not the coffee though. It is the burr that is grinding. So when the experiment is heating up, so your gap between the two burrs is bigger. So the grind size of your coffee is actually coarser compared to like 10 minutes ago when you are chilling and not making any coffee. Okay, I had actually did not follow you. Now I do though. So the burr actually changes size with heat? Relatively. Very, very tiny, but it's enough to make your shots go
2: crazy. And if you're standing at the counter at a coffee shop, do you ever even see the grinder in order for it to be the tail? Are there espresso machines that you believe are the best in class? Or what do you use?
3: Um, We use a variety. So our first shop, we actually use the Larmazoco. And our second shop, we use a Cineso. And then uh, the rest of the shop, we use San Remo. And in our lab, we also have a few. We have uh, San Remo, we have Faima, and we also have Victoria Arduino. Oh, my goodness. And... They must vary
2: one to the next, yet you haven't put all of your coffee beans in one machine. Why is that? Like, why do you prefer the variety to staying with one? The
3: idea of starting this lab back then was to create like a playground for baristas. So, if I were to stick to one type of espresso machine, then uh, it will be easy for a lot of people to learn and then like get out. But at the same time, we want to be able to like have this feature to uh, let the barista or the students to try it on. Let's say, instead of turning a knob to steam your milk, you press a button to start and stop the steam wand. So these are all different ergonomics that we can see from the design of an espresso machine. What qualities in a person makes a great barista? Attention to detail and also consistency. Like sometimes they learn from scratch, like they don't know anything on how to tam coffee and all that, and they learn from the beginning itself. So bad habits are really hard to break as baristas. Like before I train myself professionally to make coffee, I have tons of bad habits that I tell myself not to do it anymore. What are some of the bad habits that need to be broken? I think the most important part is like cleaning your steam one right after you froth your milk and then perch the water out from your steam one before you froth the milk. So these are all these little things that we want. And then weighing your shots, making sure that 0.1 is 0.1 and not 0.5. And also cleaning up after pulling shots, purging. So a lot of cleaning procedure that baristas, when they are working in a really busy coffee shop, they omit it because they don't have enough time to clean before they make the next shot. But we make it priority to actually... Make sure your station is always clean. That is not exactly what I would have expected, that it
2: all comes down to just clean, 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 clean station, clean wand, everything. Well, we're going to take a quick break now and we'll be right back.
1: The Big Food Question is partnering with TD Bank on five special episodes about the resilience of small businesses in the face of a constantly shifting pandemic landscape. We cover avenues for accessing grants, loans, and financial services through federal and local government programs, as well as via nonprofits. We examine the benefits worker cooperatives present to workers, communities, and our food system, and share resources to learn more about operating under this model. We're talking to business owners who started pop ups and became permanent during the pandemic to see what we can learn. Don't miss these episodes. Subscribe to The Big Food Question wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to TD Bank for supporting this programming. Hello, this is Dana
2: Cowan and you're listening to Speaking Broadly. And today we're talking about coffee, everything coffee. We've been focused on my questions, but I'd love to know what are the questions that you get most often?
3: Can I be funny or it has to be coffee related? No, you can be funny. (laughs) Okay I think um, this three question is do you have Wi-Fi do you have a ba- yeah do you have a bathroom and do you have oatmeal? <laughs> it's funny but um, but in terms of coffee related um, then we get a lot of people asking like if it's your coffee organic or do you have decaf, and what is your house special? Okay, so
2: let's talk about organic. Is there a lot of organic coffee available in the U.S.? It's
3: something that I don't see that that much of. So organic, where we're talking here is that we're talking about certification and things that are already in the paper. Um, there are a lot of offering, but it is just a little bit harder for us to take it just because a lot of smaller farmers that we are working with directly or even like smaller producers they don't really have the resources to actually get their coffee certified. Right. It's the exact same thing in the vegetable world. Like there's a lot of farmers
2: with really spectacular practices and their vegetables are beautiful. I mean, not just beautiful, like in looks, but I mean, beautiful the way the soil has been treated and the people are treated and all of that, but they don't pay for the certification because it's just too
3: expensive. Yeah. So it's the same with the coffee industry. So whenever possible, we learn more about how the coffee is being done, being organized organic or not, it's not a number one thing that Coffee Project is seeing in terms of certification when we get it. We care a little bit more about if the money that we're investing in this coffee is going back to the farmers to help them do this or not. Um, Just maybe two to three months back, um, we bought like one full micro lot of coffee from this lady called Edoviges Panche in Colombia. And she's the first uh, generation specialty coffee farmer for them first generation specialty coffee farmers, maybe it's super challenging to actually get their coffee out and We're lucky enough to be connected to v through Cosecha traders. and uh, After we are doing all this and we're start serving their coffee, uh, Edvie has actually shared a video of her with us um and thank us for buying her coffee and now her children is going to school and things are changing. I'm like, I was so touched when I saw it. And I'm like, Oh man, what have I done? Like, I just want to keep doing things like this. Um, it's just like, I'm a woman inter- entrepreneur myself. I know how hard it is sometimes to get words out there just because I'm a woman. So I want to be really supportive for people who are uh, like out like myself. Yeah. Are you investing it back in those
2: communities? Is that something you have mind for the future?
3: Um, For the future, we try because we are still a pretty small company. We don't know where our direction is as far as how we're going to do this. But for now, at least I know for sure I'm able to is to support uh, producers and farmers whom their voices are not heard. This is what we want to do. We want to support women law. We want to go to some coffee that is produced by uh, women farmers owned by Uh, women producers. These are things that we are already doing and we're capable of doing. Some of our coffee from African region is brought to us from this importer called Mizar Coffee. And they have been trying to build a clean water well in Ethiopia. So these are the things that by coffee project alone, I won't be able to do. But we can help Mizar coffee importers to actually get together and like raise funds to build this water for them. I mean, water could not be
2: more important both
3: to coffee and to
2: to life in the planet. Um, Decaf, one of the three most asked questions, how do you feel about decaf? What is decaf? How do you get decaf? And should we be drinking decaf?
3: Um, yes. Decaf is here for a reason because there's demand. But back then when we started Coffee Project, I actually did not serve decaf and don't really like the idea of decaf because correct me if I'm wrong, everyone who's listening, I haven't really done a lot of research on decaf just because I don't do it that much. But back then, it wasn't a very nice way to actually extract caffeine out of coffee. It's like chemically treated. I have this goal for my coffee shop. It's like, if I don't feel comfortable drinking or eating that product, I will not put it in my coffee shop. And therefore there's no decaf. But now, yeah, we start serving decaf because um, I understand like some people want the taste of coffee, but they're allergic to caffeine. I'm a little bit more uh, empathetic in that terms already. And there are already great decaf coffee now in the world where it's like, it is naturally occurring or like even like, more traceable uh processing so it's safer to consume what coffee would be naturally decaf there's a type of varietal or maybe two types of varietal that in general like organically originally they are lower caffeine level compared to most of the coffee that we have i think i had i tasted it one time uh, from the terra farm it's a varietal forgot the name but it is from brazil so um, it's good if you don't have a caffeine tolerance. And now Swiss water decaf is also really good. Uh, they have um, some natural way of like processing the caffeine out of the coffee. This is also something I would recommend and they taste delicious. When you look ahead
2: to how coffee might evolve in general in the next five, 10 years, what type of changes do you see both in the in the farming and in the serving and the making? Of coffee both and this sounds like a gigantic question So answer whatever part you want but uh, you know what what future do you see in those things and also
3: consumer and cafe or retail i think for the producing and the farmers and um, i think i will see a lot of people coming together a lot more to produce more experimental coffee so things big say like sometimes we have coffee that is from a certain region, but they are fermented using uh, creative ways. Like, for example, uh, carbonate maceration is a term that is being used a lot in wine processing, right? So some people are starting to use this way to actually ferment coffee, and then they come out, coffee tastes a lot sweeter, a lot fruitier compared to it being traditionally processed naturally or wash or like honey. So I think we are going to be seeing a lot more Experimental processing in the producing country, and as far as consumer or like brewers, like barista, I foresee a lot of technology happening that uh, it's going to be helpful for brewing. And what what
2: would that be? Just easier, faster, less work for the
3: human? Yeah, probably. So now you get like to see some. Baristas don't even have to tamp their coffee puck anymore because there is a machine that helps them. One way it does help with the injury on our wrist, on our shoulder, and also to take care of like rush. But I'm also thinking about devices that can help to make sure your milk don't go too hot or too burnt or under the temperature. So there are devices right now that is going to help you to froth your milk up to a certain temperature and then it stopped. And then you just... Pour into the coffee. So my barista was just showing me yesterday, and I'm like, "Whoa, we're totally gonna be replaced in 20 years' time." <laughs>
2: <laughs> but of course, you're not right, because part of the great experience of a coffee shop is
3: knowing your barista. Exactly. So I I always say, um, making coffee is just part of like what we do. Our real job is actually being in the community and creating that whole coffee experience. Even if there's a robot out there in the future that can make the exact same cortado that you make. So the robot will not be able to create this connection with the customer and they will want to come back and see you because they want to say hi. At the end of any conversation that I have on Speaking Broadly,
2: I ask my guests to pay it forward to a woman who they believe other people should know more about. And I wonder if you might have someone who you'd like to give a shout out to.
3: Um, I really want to give a shout out to Veronica Green. She is the founder of Glitter Cat Barista. And a lot of things in Coffee Project happen because of how we see her competing and encouraging us who competed in the barista industry because um, most of us uh, in coffee project, we are a minority. And a lot of times we also don't get access to a lot of resources to compete. And we don't have the confidence at all because uh, we know maybe this is not meant for us. When you say compete, I think you mean an organization that holds competitions and then you compete as coffee baristas? Uh, yes. Sorry. I should have clarified. So uh, when I say compete, is us going to uh, U.S. coffee championships. So uh, in Coffee Project, we actually have two U.S. Brewers' Cup uh, who went to national and placed top 20 and top 10. So um, all these happened because um, Veronica's like had this really beautiful organization, nonprofit organization so called Glitter Cap and we were there and we were trained on how to compete. And what are the things to look out for? And therefore, we started going into this coffee competition stage. And we want to keep doing it. And we want to be able to inspire more people like us to go for it. Because the stage or like the industry is going to be more beautiful if we have more people of color, people of different originalities to actually go there and diversify this whole stage.
2: You, You were talking about, you know, you come from Malaysia and coffee is part of your culture. What does your family think of what your chosen profession? Because I know that you had been in IT before and you changed completely. Do they? How do they feel about it?
3: Um, it's hard, but uh, I am actually considered pretty lucky because growing up, my parents give me a lot of freedom to choose what I want to do. But uh, my family back home has hospitality uh, background as well, because my maternal family owns a coffee shop that is similar back home (laughs) yeah I didn't realize yeah yeah so that's how we grew up but we were always pushed to go to school you know like graduate so that you don't work like how it is for them like they work long hours make very little money yeah so for me um coming in here and then like they have been really supportive of me and Kalina starting coffee project and even though I switched so many direction and all I think now I can finally say this is it then i'm like this is what i want to do this is going to be me when i'm 80 years old
2: <laughs> well thank you so much for joining me it has been such a pleasure and i've learned so much thanks for your time thank you for your wisdom and thank you for sharing it with all of us thank you all of you for listening i hope you felt like you learned something too and are ready to go get a cup of coffee and read a book Speaking broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.